and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5. I just want to tell you in advance, this is one of those messages uh, today where um, oftentimes when I travel and fill in for pastors uh, to preach in their churches when they're gone, I will usually preach a message like this uh, or a tithing message because these are messages that pastors don't want to preach to their own congregations, and so these hired hitmen come in to do it. And uh, I, but because we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and we got to this passage, and I don't have anyone to fill in for me, I have to do this. So I'm going to ask that you pretend that I am a visiting pastor. Because <laughs> it's, it's a tough passage. But um, God has proved, proved faithful, as he always does when we honor his word. Uh, he honors the teaching of his word, and he always blesses. He did first service, and I pray he does second service. So we're in Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, so would you stand with me for the reading of the word of the Lord? We stand for the word of the Lord, we sit for the word of the teacher, one we honor, the other we tolerate. (laughs) Now, usually tradition comes that we do stuff over and over and people forget why, and if you've heard that explanation over and over again, it's because there's some folks that are new and I just want it to be known why we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up where we left, we're going to pick up where, where we studied last week, which was one verse, verse 21, but we have to read verse 21 to put verses 22 through 33 into context. So I will pick up at verse 21. Everyone say with me the very first word, submitting. Let's do it again. Submitting. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then again, I want to read in 1 Corinthians 11.3. You can note it, but you don't have to turn there. The passage reads, and this is regarding headship, when the scripture says that the husband is the head of the wife. I want you to understand headship. This is 1 Corinthians 11.3. It says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God, God the Father. So we'll cover what headship means and all that stuff, but let's pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, as we undertake the study of your word and we come to this place where we see this tremendous formula for peace in what has been and continues to be the longest raging battle in the history of the world, the battle of the sexes. And there's been tumult and there's been tension and there's been fighting and most marriages are no better than an armed truce but God we come today to this passage to see what your heart is in regards to marriage we come to see that there is this application of submission that you speak of in verse 21 that applies to every relationship whether it be husband and wife or parents and children or employees and employers This principle works, and so this is the application of this principle of submission. So, Lord, would you instruct us and guide us that we would realize the joy of being who you created us to be? We ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh, please be seated. In uh, verse 21 that we studied last week, the Apostle Paul, I would say the Lord through the hand of the Apostle Paul, declares two principles that are found in one verse that will resolve all conflict on the face of the earth if correctly applied. And we find that every human being is 
is created in such a way to desire fulfillment and realization of who they are. We want to find that identity of who we are. We long to, to be fulfilled in that calling in life, and we're always striving to find out what that's all about. But as we do that, we run into a conflict in life because as I'm seeking to find out who I am, someone else is seeking to find out who they are, and our desires clash, and we come to a place where we're warring with one another, never more so than in, in, in the battle of the sexes, and especially when you're drawn to a woman or a woman is drawn to a man and, and you want to be loved and you want to love, but then you, you get in the same realm of each other and you realize you have differing opinions, differing desires, and then conflict results and you have an armed truce and a standoff or a divorce. Or you just come to a place where you're two ships passing in the night, you, you occupy the same dwelling, but you speak very little. God never intended it to be that empty, that void of joy. And we find this battle of the sexes, we find this conflict, not only as we see in a husband and wife relationship, but the passage will go on to talk about parents and children, children and parents. It'll go on to talk about employees and employers, employers and employees. And every relationship, whether it be friends, whether it be neighbors, whether it be employers, employees, uh, parents, children, husband, wife, there's conflict. I want what I want, you want what you want. We throw down, we draw the line, and we battle. And there's conflict in in the entire world. And James even says, where do wars come from? It's just, it's just multiplied on a larger scale, but it, it starts with two people not getting what they want. And you don't get what you want, you throw down, and you're, you're willing to do what needs to be done to get what you want to get. And thus you come to a conflict. And, and in this conflict, we find in, 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 in verse 21 last week, two very significant principles that will bring peace into any turmoil. And the the first principle that we found last week as we studied the passage together was that we cannot find fulfillment without another person involved. You can't find fulfillment without another person being involved. That's why we, it's no fun to look at a sunset alone. You know, I wish there was somebody here to hold my hand when I was watching this. I don't care if you're self-driven and you, you know, you've made a fortune, there's still times where you're lonely. And money can buy sex, but not love. It can buy a bed, but not sleep. It can buy a house, but not a home. And you know that all the wealth that you've obtained, all you want to do is be able to share it with somebody. But a life lived in self-focus and and uh, self-indulgence ends up that you're all alone and miserable and you have children that are waiting for you to die so they can split your estate. Yeah. And it's awful. And this emptiness in life. But life is so constructed and so made that we need others. We are a creature that God has created to have a need for others. We're not made, listen, we're not made to satisfy ourselves. The Bible says in Romans that we've been created subject to vanity, subject to emptiness. We're not created to be able to satisfy ourselves. Being alone doesn't cut it. There's still an emptiness. And though each of us has within us the drive to fulfill ourselves and to find satisfaction, we make a very very grave and serious error if we think we can ever do that apart from reacting or relating to another person. God wants us to relate with each other. We're on this earth to interact and to relate with another person. And is this matter of human relating that Paul undertakes in verse 21, this picture of submitting to one another in the fear of God. And he, he undertakes it not only in a relationship, again, with husbands and wives, but also with parents and children, also with employers and employees this application of submission. How do we apply verse 21? How does this application of submission come? And it's, it's a, a fundamental reality of life. And the fundamental reality of life is simply this, that we cannot achieve our own self-satisfaction if we try to do so. But we can only achieve it. Listen, this is the second principle. We can only achieve it if we seek to obtain not our own benefit but the benefits of another. You see, if we try to gain or we try to keep our life, we'll lose it. But if we lose our life, we'll gain it. The picture comes in laying down your life. The Bible says uh, that we lay down our life and in losing our life, we gain a life. The two become one flesh. They become a whole different picture. And this is why the, the Apostle Paul says, subject yourself one to another and, and, and in this idea that we can only find fulfillment in seeking another's benefit, wanting to serve them. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, 
but to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for the many. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, in his realm, in his universe, in his purposes, then you're to be a servant of all. Fulfillment only comes in service. I have news for you. You want to get out of your depression? Start serving people. It goes a long way. And right now in this room are marriages where there's lines that have been drawn and wars that have broken out. And there's tension. And, and even hearing the principles that God has laid down that will only find fulfillment in serving another. We attempt to do that. And what do we end up with? Frustration. Because I tell you what, motivation can only go so far. I mean, I'll tell you what, our spouses know the buttons to push to get us into self-indulgence. And you, you try to lay down and serve, and then they'll press a button, and you go, that's it. I don't need this anymore. And then war breaks out. And that's why the Apostle Paul says the second principle is so important in verse 21. And this second principle is that in every relationship in life, listen, every relationship in life, whether it be husband and wife, parents and children, employee, employer, in every relationship in life, there is always, listen, there is always a third party. There's always a third party. And this third party is Jesus Christ because the scripture says submitting to one another in the fear of God. We subject ourselves to the Lord. We subject ourselves to the Lord. It's no longer what do I want or what can I get out of it. It's what does the Lord desire. And so we see that this is that submission. This is that picture of submission that the Lord declares. This is that, that secret to peace in, in warring conflict. That number one, we realize it will only find fulfillment, that self-identity, when we serve another. And secondly, the only way we can do that is to realize in every relationship there's a third party, and that's Jesus Christ. And so we no longer say, what's in it for me, or what do I get out of it? But we say, God, what do you want? And the Lord says, here's how it works. And so the Apostle Paul says, with this principle of verse 21, these two applications, I'm going to show you how to apply it to every relationship in life, beginning with the one that has caused the greatest conflict in the history of mankind, a husband and a wife. And he says, this is where the application of submission begins. Now, Paul points out as we continue in verses 22 through 33, he says, basically that the method of submission will differ according to the sex. Because both are to submit, but the method of, of submission will differ according to the sex. But the principle is the same for both husband and wife. How do we, uh, how do we subject ourselves one to another? Well, the scripture begins by talking to the wives first. Verse 22. And the scripture says, wives, submit. Submit. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's the third party. There isn't a man on this planet worthy of submission. Amen. We're all a mess. I, 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 I have no idea why Michelle submits to me. I am the most difficult, ornery, frustrating human being on the face of the earth. And she makes me feel like king of my castle. She honors me. She submits to me. I do my best to do the same to her. But I, I look at this and I think there really isn't a man worthy of submission on the face of the earth. And I'm so grateful that God put a third party in that relationship. And, and the Lord says to my wife, Michelle, I know this is a high and noble calling I am placing upon you, woman. But dear, dear daughter, I'm going to make it easy on you. Don't submit to him. Submit to me. And in submitting to me, I ask you to submit to him. So what you do, you don't do for that ungrateful wretch of a human being. You're doing it for me. And you know how much I love you, Michelle. I gave my life for you. I laid it down. He's learning how to do that. I've done it. What I've done for you, you do for him. And so that third party's present. Yeah. The method will differ. The method will differ according to the sex, but the principle is the same. And for Michelle, she's to submit to me as unto the Lord. And she goes on, the Lord goes on to say, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. And, and you, you look at this, and this, this is that picture that becomes the motivation that it's the Lord that we submit to. It's the Lord that we submit to. And, and we, 
we, we see this idea that what God is saying to the wife is subject yourself to serve your husband. Subject yourself to serve your husband. We, we sang that song. What you say I will do and where you lead I will go. Yes? I did say I was setting you up. What you say I will do and where you lead I will go. Subject to the Lord. See, that application is to be applied to the husband. That's a tough one. You know, and, and how do we do that? Well, I often think that the Word of God, and it's true, that the Word of God is God speaking to the church. Amen? How does the church speak to God? I believe that the church speaks to God through the hymnal. The songs that we have uh, accumulated and we sing to God, psalms, hymns, spiritual praises, making melody in our heart one to another, but to the Lord. And even in the gifts that are, are, are listed, the, the gifts of this, the Holy Spirit that are listed, one being tongues, tongues is, is only and always used and interpreted as, as not God speaking to man, but man speaking to God through psalms and hymns and spiritual praises. And so the way that the church speaks to God is through the hymnal. And so when we look at the hymnal, it's a really good way for wives to see how they're to, to submit to their husbands. And we see one of the hymns that we sing, where he, 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 what he says, I will do. And where he leads, I will go. And, and as we declare that to the Lord as the church, the wife declares that to the husband. Where my husband, what my husband says do, I will do. And what, where my husband goes, I will follow. I will go. And I, and I think about this idea, all the way my Savior leads. I mean, that's a beautiful hymn in the old book, all the way my Savior leads. You can, you can replace that with all the way my husband leads. There's a real silence in the room. One of the hymns you'd rather sing was this idea of sound the battle cry. <laughs> that's an old hymn, but it's not one to be applied to a marriage. You know, I was, I was thinking about this struggle of submission and how difficult it is in a world that's filled with selfishness, a world that's inundated with self-indulgence, self-focus, and all the misery that is, is rampant on our earth. The scripture declares that the wife is not to be the husband's slave, but his helpmate, his helpmate. That's what was declared in Genesis. Nature confirms this. Nature confirms that the wife is to be the helpmate. Genesis declared it, the helpmate. Not, not a slave to be dictated to, but a helpmate who willingly lays their life down to let the husband lead, but to help them in the direction that God has given them. And, and in doing this, this is that, that picture and that identity. And you say, well, I don't believe that I, that identity is legitimate. Well, I'll tell you where the proof of that identity comes from. And I'm amazed by it. Proof of the fact that God has created us to fill these roles is declared by the homosexual community. Some of you are going, what? Oh, yeah, walk with me here. Pay attention. In, in, a, in a gay relationship or a gay marriage, you're always going to find, whether they're, they're, they're male homosexuals or lesbians, you're always going to find in a gay marriage or a great gay relationship a butch, one who acts like the man and one who acts like the woman. They're trying. They want to make the family work and they want to make the identity. And they're doing the best they can. Look, I get it. I may not, I, I don't advocate it, but I get it. I remember People Magazine showed the picture that, that one woman who had changed her body and looked like a man and took hormone and, and you know, had her breasts removed and everything, and she, she was pregnant. And it says a man's having a baby and put it on People Magazine. I looked at it and I said, that is not a man having a baby. That is God declaring that nature's laws are just as legitimate today as they've always been. That no matter how much she tries to change her body and look like a man and fulfill the role of a man, longing to have this authority and the woman trying to submit and working the family out, she's a woman and she has a baby. No matter if she, she disfigures her body. And every human being wants to be in a relationship where they can, they can experience their identity. But even in, in, a, in, a, in a gay marriage, that identity is a struggle. They know there are roles. You would think if they knew roles, the church would get it. Yes? 
Even Jesus says a house divided will not stand. Satan knows that when they said you cast out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, are you nuts? Satan understands authority. You know, you, Satan's not going to cast out his own kind. He understands authority. Even the realm of evil gets authority. But somewhere along the line, as selfishness has creeped into the church and we want what we want, the identity is such a struggle and this word submission is so ugly. And, and yet the Bible commands that not just the wife submit, but the husband submit as well, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Again, the method will differ according to the sex, but the principle is the same. And so this picture that nature confirms, even in the homosexual community, that there's to be a leader and a follower. And listen, a follower isn't any greater than the leader, and a leader isn't any greater than the follower. There's a willingness. A slave is not a follower. A slave is a slave. A follower is somebody who willingly submits and follows the lead and the authority. And as the, as the, as the Apostle Paul points out through the Holy Spirit, he says, this is a great mystery. He says, I speak concerning Christ and the church. Not only is it true in marriage, it's true in the church. There's authority. There's leadership. God appoints all positions of authority. There's leadership. There's fellowship. I don't force you to come to church. You willingly come to church. I didn't demand to be your pastor. They called me to be the pastor. I'm here. There are days that I wonder why you picked me. There are days where, where I would rather do anything. My dream job is to collect shopping carts at Target. But here I am. And I, I've experienced this not so much in my marriage. Michelle, for, for, for all the years that we've been married, 22 years of marriage, she has submitted to me every day of my life in marriage. And I'll tell you, 22 years down the line, I'm a, a lot easier to submit to than when we were first married. But she always did. Always did. But the picture that was interesting to me is when I first became the pastor about 12 years ago, we, 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 we came to the fellowship, and Michelle was eight months pregnant. And it was my first pastor as a senior pastor. And I'd been an assistant pastor at church doing youth ministry and some men's ministry, but I'd never dealt with a whole church. And now here I am, the senior pastor of a church. And, and I get here, Michelle, again, eight months pregnant. And uh, that, that consumes all of you, by the way. And, uh, you know, when you're filled with a child who would ultimately be over 10 pounds, sucking the life out of you, really, there isn't much more you can do at eight months. And we moved down here, and the move was exhausting. Everything else was exhausting. But I got to the church, and there's a handful of people in the church, and I'll never forget this. The, the pastoral select committee looked at me, and they said, the very first item on the agenda is you've got to get a women's ministry going. The women are up in arms. They want a women's ministry. I'm like, okay, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> women's ministry is hard. My own wife, I don't understand, and I don't know how to do them. Women's, okay, yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> I should. I came home, I said, honey, uh, I know you're big with the baby. Not big, you're, you look great, but, uh, the, you know, here primarily. And, uh, and she stopped crying. I said, honey, I said, honey, uh, I need you to help me to put a women's ministry together. And she said, okay. I said, and the women are up in arms. And it was funny because the, the guys in the pastoral select committee, they all had like rings in there. Like, yeah, why said that we need to have a women's ministry? And the women are like, we want a women's ministry. Ah! I'm like, whoa. You know, and the guys were like, oh, she said I needed to do this, and I'm just here to do that. And the women are like, yeah, we want a women's ministry. I'm like, what kind of a church is this? So I turned to my wife, and I go, honey, you need to put a women's ministry together. And she goes, okay, all right. She goes, I'll pray about that. So she begins to pray. I'm like, honey, I mean, we needed to do it like yesterday. They're going to, I'm going to be tarred and feathered and kicked out of town. Well, the Bible says, be anxious in nothing, but all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made. Would you mind if I pray? No, 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 no. You, you go ahead and pray, but can you let me know when you hear something? <laughs> and she prayed, and I, every day I got a call. When are we going to get something going? <laughs> My wife's praying about it. And uh, you know what I learned? She came to me, she said, you know, Rob, God has given you the mantle of the church. And I want the women's ministry to follow the vision God's given you. And I'm waiting to hear from you what that is. Whoa. I'm like, well, then we'll wait. He's defining it. And she said, Rob, they may be anxious, but the reality of it is what they need the most is the thing they're fighting against in the greatest capacity. You need to submit. 
I'm like, whoa, you're hot. And as, as we, we went through this, I was so blessed by it. And, and she started to put this together, and then Michael was born, and she was, you know, focused on Michael, and she needed help. And I said, honey, just, you, you got it going, I'll take it from here. And I, I said, you know, Lord, bring somebody. And, and there was a woman who came forward, and she, I'll help you, I'll help you. I said, oh, great. And I, I love people stepping forward, I'll help you. I said, yeah, come on in. And she said, this is what we need to do. And she started working on it and getting stuff done. And next thing I know, it's going in directions, and I don't even know what's happening. I'm like, what in the world? And they're doing stuff. I'm like, what is going on here? And, and the blessing is, and, and, and this, is, this is what's changed over the years. You know, like with Mary Solar running the women's ministry study in the previous session, and then we got Gary Ann Rubenstein doing it this summer. Both of these women have, have con- confided in me and shared with me where they're going and what they're doing. They may hold different positions or thoughts, but they communicate with me because they want to seek to follow the identity and the mission that God has given me and where we're going, and they recognize that. And, but early on, this one woman was like, she was running the show. And I, I remember coming to the office one day, and I went to open up my office, and she's in my office. And she goes, can you just give us a minute and close that door? Thanks. I'm like, okay, <laughs> this, is, this is out of control. And I, I, I sat down with her and I said, where's this going? And she said, well, you're a young pastor and you really don't know what you're doing. And you just need to trust me on this. I go, time out. I was a young husband too. And Michelle has never said that to me. I said, it's not your vision. It's a vision that God has. He's given me and we operate in that capacity. I didn't ask for this job. It was given to me. This is how it works. She says, yes. I'm leaving. I said, okay. Best thing that ever happened. And I watch as this gentle leading and this, this prayerful waiting, you know, in, in the absence of a strong male, there, there's this desire to want to fill that vacuum that's created by the husband not leading. And in that vacuum that's created, I remember the, the story of the judge that's, that was standing before a man and says, is it true that you haven't spoken a word in two years of marriage? He says, yes, your honor, it's true. He says, why is that? He says, I didn't want to interrupt her. <laughs> because in the absence of a man leading, and listen, men, we're not leading, and we're going to get into this. In the absence of us leading, our wives, want, they, they want to see the kingdom move forward, and they're, they're, they're tired of waiting. That's too bad. Be anxious in nothing. God has a whole plan. Step back. They're going to let you run in. They're going to let you take it. We're not going anywhere. God wants to raise up godly men. He wants to raise up wives that make them feel godly. He wants to have that identity and that picture and that role fulfillment established. And in serving one another and laying our lives down and, and leaving and cleaving and the two becoming one flesh and this headship is what he speaks of. The scripture says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as a church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything, everything. The head of the woman is the man. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. But that's why I read out of, out of 1 Corinthians eleven three, everyone has headship. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God the Father. Everyone submits to somebody. And in this picture of headship, some of the things that I started to realize, there's four principles of headship. There's four principles of headship. The first is, is identity. Identity. Jesus said in John 14, or Jesus said, I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. That's where you find in the scripture where this, this identity is the fact that, that uh, when Jesus says, I and my father are one, and the scripture goes on to declare that, that a man will leave his, his mother and father and be cleaved to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's a new identity. Not two individual people sharing the same apartment or home. They are one. Their identity is in each other. You see Michelle, you've seen me. You see me, you've seen Michelle. You're with Michelle, she represents me, and you see me, I represent her. We're one. 
We're not divided. The kids try to do it, but we stop them. We're one. The two become one flesh, our identity. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. So the very first picture of of headship is identity. Women, ladies, wives, do you see your identity in your husband? And And husbands, do you see your identity in your wife? The two become one. That's your identity. And in that identity is this, this, this second element of headship, and that's cooperation. This idea of cooperation is, is that Jesus says, I do that which my Father desires to do. What my Father does, I do. And this is His whole desire, this is His whole picture, this is how He established it. It's His cooperation in accordance with work. Whatever job needs to be done, we do it together. The, the, the third idea of headship is honor. Jesus says um, in, in, uh, in the scriptures, I honor my father and my father honors me. Honor. Honor. You know, you, you show me in the scriptures where Jesus ever bags on the father. You show me where the father ever talks smack about the son. She's not your old lady. It's not funny. It's not funny. She's not your little lady. It's honor. Jesus says, or the father says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. He will be honored and lifted up. There's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. This is my son in whom I love. I am pleased. You never hear the father talk smack about the son and you never hear the son talk smack about the father. It's honor. It's honor. And then the fourth element of headship is submission. Jesus says, whatever... Well, basically, he says in John 14, 28, he says, my father's greater than I. My father's greater than I. I always do those things which please my father. Excuse me. Jesus is God, yes? But he submitted to the father, and he says the father is greater than him, but there's an equalness to it, yes? And I'll tell you what, submission isn't easy. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane knowing that the cat of nine tails would be on his back, knowing that the crown of thorns would be on his head and the nails would be in his hands, the spear would be in his side, the nail would be in his feet, the face would be swollen and the beard would be plucked out. Knowing what he knew, knowing what lay before him, he says, Father, if there be any way this cup pass from me, but not my will, thy will be done. What you say I will do, and where you go I will follow. Not my will, but thy will be done. The Father is greater than I. He went to the cross. It was awful. And the Father honored the Son. And the grave couldn't hold him. And because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, and we've been delivered by the obedience and the submission of the Son to declare the heart of the Father that out of mercy, grace was abundant. You want that for your children? Live it in your lives. Show them by your example. Submit to one another. Wives, the picture for you is to submit to your husbands in everything. No, that's not talking about him being God and that you're, you're to do those things that dishonor the Lord. No husband should ever ask his wife to do that. No husband should ever say to his wife, wife, submit. That's a weak man. Wives, you should willingly do it as as under the Lord. And in doing it, there's this fulfillment, this identity. That's the picture of the headship, to know who you are and how God made you. And your submission to your husband is a direct barometer. It's a clear barometer of your submission in honor of the Lord. For some, that's hard to embrace, hard to grasp, but it's a reality. 
And so as we, we see this picture and we see this picture of headship and we see this idea that, that this is how the son submits to the father. This is how he serves that headship, that authority. And that's what we do. And that's how we live. But when we come to this place where the Lord opens up to us the identity for the husband and this, this, this application of submission as he declares for us to submit to one another in the fear of God, knowing that the method will differ according to the sex, but the principle is the same. The submission that the Lord declares for the husband is intense. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Husband, love, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Um... You know, let me tell you what authority isn't, fellas. It's not sitting on your Barca lounge, you're saying, go get me a beer. Please show me that in Scripture. You don't have kids because your remote control doesn't work. Right? Go get me a sandwich. You're not king of the castle in that sense. Show, show me in the scriptures where Christ demanded. You know what he did? He served. He laid his life down. When, I'm sorry. When was it declared that you're not allowed to change a diaper? When, when is it the women's role that they're supposed to do the heavy lifting of the children? The, the scripture says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You get to make the decisions, yes, in accordance with the Lord and his word. But you give yourself to her. You lay your life down. You communicate. You talk. She wants to know what's going on in that noggin of yours. You don't grunt at her and say, just do as you're told. Shut up, do as you're told and like it. If I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. I told you I loved you when I married you. And if I change my mind, I'll let you know. That's not marriage. That's awful. Yeah. No, she can't hear it enough. She wants to know she's beautiful. She wants to know you find her attractive. You bathe her in the water of the word. Men, read your scriptures. She wants to submit. She has to submit, regardless if you read them or you don't, because she's submitting to the Lord. And she's praying for you to pick up that Bible. She's praying for you to pray with the kids. I have prayed every day of my daughter's life for the, for the son of this couple. I didn't even know them. I prayed every day for that man. I prayed that God would protect her purity and her innocence, that she would be a godly helpmate. Every day. Godly children don't just happen because you go to church. You pour into their lives. Husbands, you are the thermostat, not the thermometer. You set the spiritual temperature of the home. Give your life away. Serve them. When you step over the threshold of the door, coming into the house at the end of the day, say, God, I don't care what kind of a day I've lived up until now. Make this the best part of my day and let me serve that woman. Get in there and do the dishes. Take the dishes out of the dishwasher. Change the diapers on the kids. Make her dinner. Love on her. And above all else, tell her she's beautiful. And declare it through the wisdom of the word that you have read and meditated upon. And let the Lord take that in your life. The washing of the water of the word. Why? Because the Bible says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Your wife is subject to the bondage of the world telling her that she's not good enough or pretty enough. And you remind her through the scriptures what real beauty is in accordance with with 1 Peter chapter 3. It's not the outward adorning of the hair or the fine apparel, though that's important. If the barn needs painting, paint it. The idea is, <laughs> the idea is, the Lord says it's the quiet and gentle heart, which is precious in the sight of the Lord, a quiet and gentle spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. And when Sarah called her husband Lord, whose daughters you are, and just say, you, you are beautiful. You know how you make me feel? I feel more like a man in your presence. 
You know, I, I, I look at this and this idea that he might present himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does his church. I mean, think about it, guys. You spend more time with a sharp edge razor in the delicate maneuvering on your face so as to avoid a nick and bleeding than you do with a sharp edge of your words when you pierce and bloody your wife. A tender answer turns away wrath. She responds more to your kindness, and the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. As you tenderly care for your face, care for your bride. Guard your mouth. The Bible says it's the equivalent to the, to, to the commandment that says, thou shalt not murder. You say to your spouse, you're, you're stupid, you're dumb. You, you might as well just take a gun and shoot them. Don't, I'm kidding, it's hyperbole. Why do I have to explain that? But you don't need a gun to kill them. Your words will do just fine. Don't bloody them with the sharp edge of your miserable words. Be tender. Wives, do the same. Shield the sword of your bitter tongue. And remember the third party in this relationship. And what you do, you do is unto the Lord. I want to close in these last few minutes with an illustration from Scripture. And I, I don't have time to exegete it as, as it's open before us. But I know it well enough to do it justice. And bear with me. It's one of my favorite illustrations in relation to this passage of Scripture. And it has to do with Abraham and Sarah. And it has to do also with me and my wife. I remember, and some of you know the story. I remember when I was in San Jose and we were living in a windowless apartment. Literally, windowless apartment. It was a tunnel. It's like a submarine tube. And, and as we were in this, this windowless apartment, uh, and I was working countless hours and getting paid poorly, and it was miserable. We had cockroaches, and you know, I, I won't go through it all, but it was awful. Uh, awful. And as I'm an assistant pastor, and we got a car with over 200,000 miles on it, and we're living in a windowless apartment, cockroaches, and, oh, and we're, we're eating food out of the food bank. And I remember coming home one day and I was exhausted, hadn't been reading the word, and the girls wanted me to tuck them in and I'm sitting down on the couch and I'm flipping the channels on the TV and my wife sits next to me, I don't even want her near me. And it's all I can do, I just, even her touching me is bothering me because I've given out, I don't have anything else to give. I mean, all my buttons have been pushed and it's rob time, rob self-indulgent time. And my daughter Kelly comes in and says, Daddy, will you tuck us in? I said, not tonight, Daddy's tired, go back to bed. My wife looks at me and I can feel her looking at me like a, Quit looking at me. <laughs> and, and, and Kelly, she's a gutsy one. She comes out. She goes, Daddy, please, we took. I said, Get back in bed. Not tonight. Ah, tension. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, gutsy kid. She comes out. Daddy, please. Get back in your room. And Michelle nudges me. I go, What? I'm tired. And Kelly goes back in crying, and Michelle looks at me. You know what she could have said at that moment? And she would have been completely right. What she could have said, but didn't. But what she could have said and been absolutely correct. Don't you dare yell at me. You know what kind of a day I've had taking care of these girls living in this windowless dump with the cockroaches on the floor and the trash that overwhelms and the people who wash their dishes upstairs and all their food ends up in the laundry because the plumbing's so screwed up and the lousy food that comes with the food bank because you're a pathetic pr provider and we can't even drive the car because it has over 250,000 miles on it? Oh, and you're just too tired to come in and love on your kids. Look at you, Mr. Man of God. She could have said that and been completely correct. She could have cut, cut my legs out from under me and just diminished me to a tiny little nothing. But she didn't. She did something way more cunning. <laughs> she turned to me and she says, Honey, we just miss you. We haven't seen you all day. third party enters and no Lord I am a wretch 
gentle answer turns away wrath. Mm, Michelle, I'm so sorry. I got off my lazy keister and I went in and loved on the girls. Told my wife I was sorry. She made me feel more like a man that day. You see, when Abraham heard from the Lord to leave her of Chaldees, to go to Canaan, which is a desert. Ur of Chaldees was a gated community. It'd be like going from Dos Vientos to Lancaster or Palmdale or Tehachapi <laughs> or Fresno. <laughs> and he says to Sarah, we, the Lord said we have to leave our, our, our families and all of our possessions and go to Canaan. God said, and he said, I'd make me the father of many nations. Sarah's like, all right. What you say I will do and where you lead I will follow. And godly woman goes with her husband and they go to Canaan. But, you know, Abraham, that's what the Lord said. But Abraham brings Lot and brings his dad as well as far as Haran. So he disobeys the Lord's command but makes Sarah follow it to the T. He gets to Canaan with his nephew Lot. They get there and there's a drought in the land. God doesn't say leave Canaan, but he turns to his wife and says, we got to go. And I imagine Sarah goes, but the Lord, did he say to you? Did he, did he say that we're supposed to go? Woman, shut up, do as you're told and like it. There's nothing here to eat. I don't need you. There's decisions to be made. And we're going to Egypt. Okay. Lord, I know you called us to be here. I didn't hear a confirmation of your word. My husband's going to Egypt. You got a problem on your hands. You need to break this, man but I'll leave it with you and I'm ready to go where you lead. So are we going to Egypt, Lord? And off they go to Egypt. They get down to Egypt. Abraham turns to his wife, spineless wretch that he is, the worm that he is. He says, woman, we're going into Egypt and uh, they're going to kill me and take you because you're hot. <laughs> and uh, you're my half-sister. You remember, we got family lineage. So here's what we need to do. I'm going to tell them you're my sister. You go along with the whole ploy because that way they'll want to marry you and they'll give me things. And how does that make a woman feel that her husband's not even willing to stick up for the marriage? Like, you know, tell them you're my sister. So spineless coward. She's like, yes, dear. Because for her, it's the truth. I am your half-sister. But for Abraham, a half-truth is a whole lie. He's lying. She's obeying. She's not, she's not deceptive. She's, you know, I can tell them I'm your half-sister because it's true. So in they go, submitting to the Lord. And then in an intimate moment, Pharaoh catches them. Plus, there's all kinds of trouble that happens in Egypt. And Pharaoh goes, why did you do this? You lied to me. She's, she's not your sister. She's your wife. Everyone knows that now. Get out of my, get out of Egypt. Just get out of here. He kicks them out. And he says, and take all the possessions I gave you. I got plenty of things. I've just never met anyone godly. And apparently, you're not it. Because everyone thought in Egypt, Sarah was the most beautiful woman they'd ever seen. I'll tell you what, Egyptians knew cosmetics. And they knew how beauty treatments. And they were stunning. And, and you know, we talk about, you know, Cleopatra and everything about Egypt, that they knew beauty. And when Sarah walks in, she, she takes Egypt by captivation because there's nothing more beautiful than a godly woman. And now all of a sudden they're kicked out of Egypt and they're leaving and, and Abraham's got his tail between his legs and he's just slumped over and all the possessions are going with him and Sarah's next to him. And Sarah could have done to Abraham what Michelle could have done to me. You spineless, worthless wretch. I hope you love all the donkeys and the camels. You weren't even willing to stick up for me as your wife. And we're going back to this God-forsaken wilderness because you said you heard from the Lord. Aren't you just a pathetic loser? But no. The Bible says she had a quiet and gentle spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. She called her husband Lord, and she went back to Bethel, and she didn't open her mouth. You know what Abraham did? He went back to Bethel, and he got on his knees. And Sarah knew a secret. Her nagging would never be as effective as the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon Abraham's life. And her prayers put that man on his knees. He became the father of the faithful. And in a crisis of faith, and this is the final portion of it, in a crisis of faith, Sarah has heard Abraham tell everyone that he cut a covenant with God, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he's telling everyone he's going to have all kinds of descendants. And, and Sarah is barren, and she's in her 90s. And she's saying, stop it already. In the Middle Eastern culture, if you didn't have children, you were worthless. If you had female children, you were all right. Male children, you're good. No children, you're pathetic. 
She couldn't have male children. She couldn't have female children. She couldn't have any children. And she is struggling as she's reading all the glamour magazines and seeing what the world is saying, that you are not worth anything. And in that moment of struggle, as the world is pressing in on her, she turns to her husband and she says, look, I'm 90 and the Lord is withheld. And I guess at this point, you might as well, if, if your descendants are to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, you might as well go sleep with Hagar, that handmaid we got in Egypt. She's young and of childbearing years. And he goes, yeah, she's hot. And I know in this culture that they accept it as my child, even though she's giving birth to it, and we'll just go from there. And Abram goes, cool. And off he goes into Hagar's tent. I got to tell you, tents aren't thick. They aren't thick. And that night, Sarah was lying in her tent as her husband was in the arms of another woman. And her heart was broken. She laid awake all night crying. Why did he do this? How could he? And shortly thereafter, as Hagar's belly begins to grow, and she does what most women can do to other women, and you women are vicious. So are guys to guys, but women, man. You, you know, she's probably rubbing her belly, and she just looks at her. You know how a woman could look at another woman and just... And Sarah just, that's it. That's it. Turns to her husband and says, this be upon you. This is your fault. Abraham's like, whoa, wait a minute. You told me to sleep with her. I know I did, but it's not what I meant. <laughs> Women, do you ever say one thing and mean something else? Right? If I have to tell you, then it just really isn't worth it, is it? <laughs> and Abram goes, wait a minute, you said sleep with it. I know I did. The scripture says, bathe your wife in the water of the word. I didn't want you to sleep with Hagar. There isn't a woman on the planet who wants her husband to sleep with another, uh, her husband to sleep with another woman. It's not, it's what I said. It's not what I meant. This is what I wanted you to do. I wanted you to tell me that I'm Okay. I wanted, to tell you, I wanted you to bathe me in the water of the word and tell me in accordance with what God finds precious, you see in me. I wanted you to tell me I'm enough. I wanted you to tell me it'd be all right. I wanted you to tell me I'm beautiful. Ooh, I didn't get that. <laughs> so Ishmael's born, that's a problem. That's the Islamic world today. Isaac comes along, born of Sarah, child of the promise. Abraham brought that struggle into the world because he didn't listen. The roles are important. We break the roles, we got war, Ishmael and Isaac. We stay to God's plan, we stay in the roles, we understand the headship, we have peace. Submitting to one another, we all have our roles. Husbands, dwell with your wife with understanding. Love them, honor them as the weaker vessel. We're watching the Olympics. Look at the times. There aren't any women times that are faster than the men's time. Physically, there's a weakness there. If you struggle with the identity of the sexes, why? God made us this way. Men possess one thing. Women possess another. Together, we're beautiful creatures. Relax. Be happy with who you are. And be happy with the roles he's given us. God knows what he's doing. And we can settle and rest in that. And God will be glorified. Amen?